Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon and then as a podcast. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers, top commentators. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to you at the start of the week. It's Monday, the 6th of November. Coming up on the program, we'll take a look at the future of the African Growth and Opportunity Act after the weekend summit. Where will Gautrain find money to expand? Leading cleric Frank Chikani on a way forward in the Israel-Hamas war and how Kirstenbosch is standing tall among world botanical gardens. Let's start with this. And the Trade and Industry Minister Ibrahim Patel says ministers from the sub-Saharan region and the United States have agreed to small changes to the African Growth and Opportunity Act. But he goes on to say there are worries that the arrangement needs to be updated to address difficulties faced by African economies, possibly in the future. He was speaking during the closing of the 20th annual AGOA conference this past weekend. So here's my question. What, if anything, was achieved and why is this arrangement so important to this country and also to the region? We turn to Casey Delport, Investment Analyst, Fixed Income at Anchor Capital for some answers in that respect. A very warm welcome to you. Let's start with some context, first of all. How has this conference contributed, do you think, to the evolution of trade relationships between sub-Saharan Africa and the United States. Was it a, a successful meeting, do you think? Hi there, and um, thank you for having me on the show this afternoon. And, you know, overall, I believe Go is really it's a critical piece of, of U.S. legislation for the you know the African continent as a, as a whole, to be honest. At the end of the day, the, the primary objective is to promote economic development and enhance trade ties by providing, obviously, qualifying African countries preferential access to the U.S. market. And what we've really seen through AGOBA, you know, since, since implementation in around 2000, is that we've really seen it help uh, foster economic growth, job creation, and and poverty reduction across the the African continent. And in terms of the the latest summit, I would say it appears in all intents and purposes to fairly have been a success. First of all, South Africa wasn't removed from the um, the agreement itself which as well as raising a lot of you know concern around the markets we did see other african nations unfortunately become expelled uh, the u.s president joe biden announced on the 30th of october just before the the summit actually began um that gabon niger uganda and the central african republic will actually be losing now their designation as of january next year um, as a result of what they dubbed gross violations of internationally recognized uh, human rights in, on the parts of the Central African Republic, uh, Uganda and um, Niger. And really what we're seeing in, um, you know, Gabon's failure as well to, you know, re-come through the, the political coup they recently experienced. So for those intents and purposes, I mean, I think those removals mm. weren't much of a surprise to, to anyone. 
But the fact that South Africa's pulled through and the summit seems to have taken off without much, much incident. As you mentioned, uh, Minister Patel noted that there just needs to be a few sort of tweaks to, to the agreement. Um, I mean, there's been a few questions being raised if the agreement would actually even carry on from its 2020 sort of five end date. And that's not just with South Africa, that's with countries across the board. And that seems to indeed sort of be the case. So, yes, we still see this as a positive summit overall. All right. Let's look at those tweaks, first of all, if we can. Are they of any significance or are they simply just technical, do you think? Honestly, at this point, I think it's really just uh, technical elements, just a lot of politicking going back in the, you know, in the background as well. Um, it's always a to and fro with these types of agreements. You know, of course, the U.S. will want to mean to get some form of concessions out of member nations, South Africa in particular. You know, we saw this back in, in 2015 review as well, where there was questions raised then already about South Africa sort of staying in with the, the agreement. Um, and, at, you know, that time it was widely believed that a lot of U.S. You know, officials sort of um, a stance or a negotiating strategy to gain concessions from South African authorities regarding, in particular, uh, exports on, on poultry, beef and pork. So I think it's much of that same that we're seeing this year, just a few tweaks to keep all the, mm. the various parties happy. So we've bought some time. You talk about a possible expiration in 2025. But moving forward now in in the next, say, 18 months, two years, what does South Africa need to do to maximize and to capitalize on the advantages that this agreement brings? I think really to take the most of it and make sure to, you know, really strengthen ties with the U.S. As we know, at the end of the day, we we have not been within all the proverbial good books given our, our stance on the geopolitical side with Russia um, and Ukraine as well. Um, and now we're seeing the same sort of, of lines coming through on the Israel-Hamas um, conflict as well. So I think it's really to make the most of it. I do believe we will have some end of a runway with this agreement. I think it's important to, to bear in mind in the context that uh, South Africa's inclusion in the agreement has actually always been fairly under liberation given that we are regarded by the U.S. as a, as a middle-income nation. And this AGOA agreement was made uh, back in 2000 to really service the, um, you know, your lowest-income uh, sub-Saharan African countries. So our inclusion has always been under a little bit of debate. So at some point, I believe that runway will, will sort of come come to an end. So really, just to make the most of that, strengthen strengthen our ties, our economic ties, and, and keep the sort of the, the trade levels running, as long as it's still in our own benefit at the end of the day as well. But Casey, we've got to start thinking beyond 2025, if I'm hearing you correctly. So it would mean that South Africa and other sub-Saharan nations surely need to do something to mitigate any risk associated with potential changes or an end to AGOA. Uh, You'd agree that we need to start thinking carefully about that now? Yes, no, 100%. At the end of the day, I think we're still far too de- uh, dependent almost on our, our Western sort of con- country counterparts in, in trade levels. At the end of the day, the U.S. remains one of our, our biggest trade partners, along with the likes of China, Germany and the U.K., I believe there's a huge amount of untapped potential within the, the African continent for regional trade. And we've seen the development over the last few, year, few years of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. I mean, that is still very much in the in the early days uh, of, of formation. But opportunities like that is really key for, for South Africa and our, all our regional counterparts to rely you know, less on the West, which a lot of the advantages coming from, from sort of the Northern Hemisphere, Western nations, often depends largely on, you know, there's always a political sort of stance attuned to that. So if we can rely more on our, on our regional counterparts and in countries in the sort of same spheres and, and other emerging market nations, I think that's in, in the very much in the long term will be far more uh, beneficial to us. And at the end of the day, those are the countries as well that we've seen the greatest levels of, of growth from. I think the emerging markets there are, are key.
And locally, what sectors need to work harder then to maximise the time that is left? I think it's the typical sectors that are really involved. I mean, a go at the end of the day largely encompasses mostly our, our agricultural and sort of our, our mineral trade, for instance. I think, you know, in, in terms of value, at least over half of South Africa's exports in 2022 were precious metals and, and stones. Um, the next three most significant categories were vehicles, iron and steel and machinery. And ironically, those are the, the sectors in our economy that we see coming under the most pressure this year, you know, given the, the dip in, in commodity prices and, of course, our localized, uh, you know, structural issues remaining around transnet and, and load shedding. So to really make the most of those opportunities for those sectors to develop, we need to get the, the longstanding issues of, of our, our power and our, our transport and freight logistics uh, sorted so we can really, really potential, you know, potential uh, market impact. So at the end of this meeting, then, final question to you, South Africa comes out in a good place. We should be happy with the outcome. Yes, I, I believe so. You know, it looks like that the U.S. at this stage, you know, doesn't really have uh, the political sort of um, will to expel you know, South Africa from a go on the basis of our, our geopolitical stances, etc. So that I really take as a positive. Um, the fact that we were able to even host the summit this year, because that was also under contention, I see as, as a positive as well. It just means we're normalizing our, um, our international relations with, with, with key trading partners. So I think at this point, we, we can be happy with, with how it helps turn out. The fact that they've only required you know, some few minor concessions and no real you know, formal rewriting of the agreement. Um, I think it's yeah, it's, it's it's good at the end of the day. I think it's also important not to to get too lost in the in the nature or the stance of a goa itself. At the end of the day, we do have multiple levels of different tariff and export regimes with our, our trading partners, the US included, that uh, far encompass greater than than a goa itself. So long as we keep those those good trade relations, um, you know, going well. And um, as you know, supports our, our trade services, etc. Then that will really mm. in turn help boost our investor and our business confidence. Or a question, I guess, of judicious balance. Uh, Casey Delport, thank you very much indeed. Investment analyst, fixed income at Anchor Capital. MoneyWeb at midday for all your up-to-date stories. All right, let's move from trade to transport. The Gauteng Management Agency says it's finalizing an expansion project which will see its rail network almost triple in size. The question, of course, is uh, where's the money going to come from and how long will this expansion project take? From the agency, I'm joined now by Tsepe Khobe, who is the Gauteng Management Agency Chief Executive Officer Designate. Uh, Tsepe, a very warm welcome. Uh, Why the need for the expansion then? We have to be able to understand one thing. We are a province that functions with its mobility. If you've got a province that is, what do they call it, that is non-functional in terms of mobility. So let me give you the statistics that come from the modeling that we did. So the modeling that we did shows that in 2025, the freeway speed in the whole of the province will grind down to 26 kilometers an hour. It's currently hovering in and around between 40 to 35 kilometers an hour. In 2025, it does that. And then in 2037, what happens is that it it goes down to 10 kilometers an hour. Now, that is a non-functional province that will not be able to move its people and move goods and services around the whole of the province. Now, having that understanding, you also have to understand that in 2050, 70% of the world's population will live in cities. So now you have this congested smallest landmass with no freeways, 
But in addition to that, remember, before we ended up with the Etoll saga, we were going to build Houghton Freeway Improvement 1, which is one what is done now that we did during 2010. We were going to do Houghton Freeway Improvement 2, which would have added more freeways, and do Houghton Improvement Freeway Improvement 3. Now, with those projects on hold, because there's no funding for them, then it means you need to have a, an alternative for moving people. But it's a policy decision that we made a few years back that rail will become the backbone of public transport in the whole of the province. And that in itself becomes a big issue. But subsequent to that, I think it was two or three years back, we then spoke about our special economic zones, which are the seven of them, I think three in the north, two in the west end, and then one in the south, and then two in the eastern side. Now, with that, you need to have an efficient way of moving both the people that are in knowledge workers and labor from the central core to the outside of that central core where the SEZs are going to be located. Because we have decided that in 2013 that we will not build outside of the urban core. And the urban core is the current central strip. And rather we would densify the urban core uh, more than anything else. Right. And we will preserve our, our green areas in, in, in Houting. Okay, that's a very detailed explanation. Are you able at yes. this point to provide an estimated total cost for the expansion project? Not at the current moment, Jeremy. We had a number in 2017, but we're in the middle of updating that number uh, for it to be approved by uh, the national government. So this it's not set in stone? yet you're still waiting to raise the money before you can start moving we will move i mean we've been having a a conversation that there are very few projects that are are shovel ready at this point in time of that magnitude and size if you're going to jumpstart the economy of a country you would need a key critical project like ours to actually move with it we're just waiting the approval as per the treasury approval one which is required by regulation 16 of the pfma uh, which regulates all ppps so, so that is the only thing that we are, we are waiting for. We have been uh, informed that there are no challenges with our submission. The only thing is that it has been sitting for too long, and therefore we need to update the numbers within it. The challenge, of course, will be in the future to make sure that the right measures are taken to ensure that the expansion project remains on schedule and within budget. Yes, that is an important part. So one of the key things that you uh, you might be aware or not be aware of is that I've been spending a lot of time doing stakeholder engagements, engaging communities that are worried about the destructions of their neighborhood and what will happen to their neighborhoods when it... So it, it is a preemptive step for us to be able to make sure that we engage these communities up front and so that we do not end up with the 2005-2006 saga of when we built Houter in the first time. And we have communities behind the project themselves. And we actually listen. You know, we actually listen to the challenges that will come up if we build a line at grade, and which means on the ground. And we, if we build underground, what does it mean? If we build on viaducts, what would it do in, in creating sovereignty in various communities? So that is, an, is work that we're doing up front. It is not required by the current stage of the work that we're doing. But we have taken that as a step to be able to fast track the project. Do you have a projected timeline for the completion of this expansion and have you set any milestones yet? Yes. So for phase one, we're looking at sort of five and a half years, two years of us sorting out the detailed design. And because now a lot of the areas in the south, phase one is the Soweto line, which goes to Jablani, and that in itself 
because we have a lot of settlements that have been developed post-2017 and us determining the route, a lot of that line is going to end up in tunnel. And because it's going to end up in tunnel, it will take a little longer than what we had anticipated itself. We are busy with the process of redesigning the line to be able to make sure that there's you know, any severance of communities and any destruction of, of current uh, uh, neighborhoods is mitigated and we, we actually move the line underground. It will become a little bit more expensive than we had planned for, but it is a part of us being a responsible citizen to not distract communities. Just a final question then. The service as it exists right now, is it being effectively utilized and is it profitable? It is effectively being utilized. And, 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 and we, when you talk about regular, when you talk about services like ours, you always have to check one important thing. Transport is what we call a negative concession. So there is always a subsidy that gets paid in. But the measure that is used by the World Bank of whether or not services like ours are effective and are working is whether or not you can pay your operating costs. And at the current moment, uh, we are able to fully fund the operating costs from the fare box. And that is a good measure. At some point in time, we're actually at 110% of the required profitability of, of the system in terms of it being able to pay its day-to-day operational costs. But as years have gone, the, the, those margins have been eroded. Mm. And as you know, we've only normally just raised our prices with CPI, and, and, and that has been eroded to a great degree. But we are, we are happy with it. It is being used. Yes, we haven't reached the great numbers that we had before the pandemic. We are a recovering service, and globally it has been shown that uh, rail transport lags behind by 30 to 40% from other modes of transport. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Tepo Khobe, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. A group of prominent South African clerics headed by the Reverend Frank Chikani has added its voice to the growing condemnation of what they term the genocide in Gaza. In a powerful open letter addressed to church leaders as well as Christians in the United States and Europe, they've urged governments to stop the killing. Reverend Chikani joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. Reverend, a very warm welcome to you. What prompted you and your colleagues to write this letter? It's um, uh, and and good afternoon and to your listeners. Now, the it's the the people who are suffering on the ground. Remember that the church is everywhere in the world. There's no place where there's no church. And even if you have a war between Ukraine and Russia, there are members of the Council of Churches on both sides. So our pain, we one body, our pain, it's the pain of everybody. So we got calls from Palestine saying a genocide is committed. Can we talk with you? U.S. South Africans will understand us better than the, the churches in Europe and the United States, especially on Israel, because they take a particular position. We had a meeting with them, and we then agreed that because their view is their problem is their own Christian brothers and sisters in Europe and the United States. They themselves committed genocide against the Jews. And, and then through colonial means made declaration, Balfour declaration, and decided the colonialists to partition that area. 
and determined that there will be a state of Israel and Palestine, mm. etc. And after all that, lots of lives lost, 1947, and I mean, people died. Uh, the people forget that at that stage, the, in that area, there was majority uh, Arab um, residents there before it was done. The point we are making is, when, and I've been chair of the moderator of the Church Commission on International Affairs until June for the World Council. When Ukraine broke out, I said, but uh, Palestine is the same. They have been occupied for more than 50 years. Reverend Reverend Chikani, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you. Could, Could I ask you who reached out to you specifically in Palestine? Who you spoke in to? In Palestine, no, it's it's um, the church. The church. Okay, let me say specifically, Kairos Palestine. Remember the document letter is signed by uh, a respective patriarch in Palestine and myself. So it's Kairos Palestine mm. and Kairos Southern Africa. You remember we did the Kairos document in South Africa. It has become a global matter. And so we brought, we came together and they give us, gave us the reports. They had just lost contact with the churches in Gaza because the, the communication system was cut off. I mean, people are going through pain there. Yesterday we had a webinar with the people in Palestine and Israel and internationally. I mean, people tell you about people have to do operations, heap, uh, without anesthetics. Reverend Chikani, do you believe believe that uh, the citizens of Israel have a right to defend themselves against attacks which have been perpetrated by Hamas, which has been declared or designated a terrorist organization by many countries around the world? No, you're starting from the wrong spot. That's what I've been saying. Before Hamas did what they did, I've been saying that people are, are, are occupied. They have no rights. They are being killed every day. There's an average of two children being killed by Israeli soldiers in the occupied area. And Gaza was blockaded for it's 17 years now. I've been saying to the churches and the world, you can't keep quiet when this happens and when they react and act in a way that looks irrational we then come and talk about israel has got the right to defend itself no sir if you occupy people you can't talk about right of defense if you occupy people and you deny them of their rights and between the sea and the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, there's an apartheid system there that treats Palestinians different from the 
the Israelis, even when the Palestinians are in Israel, they are treated differently. Reverend, Reverend Chikani, can you, can you elaborate for me then on what actions you and your colleagues want to see from international governments in response to these issues? Um, is to, to do a ceasefire and make sure that people get medical attention, etc. But the long term, and of course, you release uh, prisoners and uh, people who are held hostage on both sides. Because remember, Israel is keeping prisoners who have been taken out of the occupied area, which is against international law. So people forget about what has been happening, and they want to hang it on the 7th of October. I'm the one who has been talking before the 7th of October. You will remember last year when we came back from Israel and Palestine, I held a press conference. I said there's trouble there. If we don't do anything, you will end up with the types of things that happened on the 1st of October. You can't blockade people for 17 years and, and, and they can't go to the sea, they can't go to land. And then you expect them to behave properly. No, if if Israel was blockaded, it will behave like that. Or if the United States, you tried it with the United States, they will fight you to the end. So we shouldn't ignore the pain of the occupied on only respond when in fact uh, Israel is affected. I'm, 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 I have Jewish friends, I've been there in Israel, I don't want anything to happen to Israelis. And the Israelis can only guarantee their future by ending the occupation, which is illegal, and let the Palestinians live a free life and allow the state solution, which was agreed and has not been implemented. Mm. I think that's really the issue. So the balancing, and in the World Council, I used to say that when there is something that happens, they want to make a statement that is balanced. And I say you can't have a statement that's balanced when you've got people mm. occupied. All right. Reverend Frank Giacani, I'm yeah. going to thank you for joining us today. And uh, I, I, appreciate, uh, I appreciate those views. Thank you indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. And finally on the program today, the World Luxury Travel Awards has named Kirstenbosch National Botanical Gardens the best botanical garden in Africa. The award acknowledges sustained commitment to excellence and outstanding achievement on a global luxury travel level. With us now is Nonsikilelo Mpulo, who is Director of Marketing and Communication at the National Biodiversity Institute. A very warm welcome to you. So how has Kirstenbosch Kirstenbosch managed to stand out among other botanical gardens in Africa? Good afternoon, Jeremy, and thank you for having me. Kirstenbosch delivers exceptional service at every touch point with every single client, and that's why um, they've been selected. We have been selected um, as the top botanical garden in Africa by World Luxury Travel Awards. What we do is that um, we take care of nature in the way that it makes every area of the garden 
beautiful to experience. And of course, it's excellence in service. And so when we people visit our tea garden or people come to the restaurant um, at Moyo, they will experience exceptional service. And that is why uh, we've been given this accolade because of the dedication that our people have to delivering excellence. I'm interested that you use the word client and not visitor. Basically, we look at our visitors as people that we're serving. So um, we service excellence is what we strive for. And they are clients, they are visitors, they're people who come to enjoy the gardens for all its beauty. How difficult is it to keep the, uh, the acreage financially sustainable? Kirstenbosch is the flagship of the South African National Biodiversity Suite of Gardens. We have 11 across the country, and it is the most financially sustainable. Um, because of the number, huge number, we have 1.2 million people that visit the garden. And um, essentially, it's international travelers as well as locals. Mm. So what we say is that we offer affordable luxury for our locals because for 100 rand, you can experience the beautiful gardens as well as the natural estate that we have. And then for international visitors, at 200 rand, um, it's really, really accessible because you, if you're traveling in pounds and um, and euros, it's really quite a cheap Always difficult, actually. Always difficult, of course, to balance commercial activity with a commitment to conserving biodiversity. Always, but what we do is what we make sure that we deliver experiences in the garden that people want to have. So, for example, we have our Sunday concerts that make us quite a great deal of money over the December holidays, and that is what sustains the the, the garden for the rest of the year. And, of course, we have an injection from government in terms of the MTA funding that we receive. What do you believe are the biggest threats to sustainability and preservation of the estate then? Well, essentially, it's climate change, to be perfectly honest. It's the way that people behave in the environment. Um, And so we, as the South African National Biodiversity Institute, are very concerned about adaptation and mitigation uh, efforts towards climate change. And of course, it's about educating people about the imprint that they have on the environment. And so we do have a lot of uh, education programs for young people um, who come in at a reduced rate and mostly free um, during our July holidays. And so what we want to do is to help people understand that they have an impact on the environment and so they must behave responsibly. Thank you very much indeed, Director of Marketing, Communication and Commercialization at the South African National Biodiversity Institute. That's where we're going to leave it for this Monday. Other stories on our radar. ESCOM uh, saying that uh, last week it dropped the ball after a stable three months of electricity supply. And Business Day is reporting today of what it terms an unfolding logistics crisis at the port of Cape Town that is set to curtail exports, particularly fresh produce, and all before the festive season. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays, then as a podcast. Goodbye to you and thank you for listening.
Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.